Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Anthony J. Dr. J is a biochemist and author of the best-selling book, Estrogeneration, and how estrogenetics are making you fat, sick, and infertile. He earned a BA with a double major from Ave Maria University and a PhD in biochemistry from Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. J has a distinguished record of accomplishments in the fields of of HIV, Alzheimer's disease, and cardiovascular research. Anthony, so much. Uh, thanks so much for coming on for the episode today. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, you're my first estrogen researcher or estrogen uh, researcher. We're going to be saying a lot of um, <laughs> British and American sayings here. Um, so, yeah, I want to introduce people to what are estrogens and why we need to uh, know about them. So, if you wouldn't mind, could you just explain to people first off? Um, what are estrogens and the es- or estrogenetics or genics that you uh, mentioned? Yeah, sure. Also, estrogen obviously is a sex hormone, <clears throat> and it has massive systemic impacts on our body. You know, a lot of these hormones they have real localized impacts just on a thyroid gland or just on the pineal gland or whatever. Estrogen is real systemic because you have estrogen receptors in most cells in your body. And the receptors are just those little things that pick up estrogen. So as it's coming through your bloodstream, receptors pick it up. It actually goes into the nucleus of the cell. And that's going to be important for stuff we'll talk about later. And it literally, when the estrogen is bound to a receptor, it goes into the nucleus and literally acts directly on DNA, which is unusual for hormones. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they bind a receptor and kind of send a signal into a cell. And then there's you know, secondary signaling, messaging molecules, kind of like a chain reaction. But estrogen is interesting. And I think a lot of people don't realize because, again, it goes into the nucleus with the estrogen receptor, acts directly on the DNA and changes thousands of genes in cells. Okay. And you were saying it is a sex hormone. So it is a naturally occurring substance and both men and women have it. Correct. And I'll give you the numbers just so people have a relative range and you don't have to worry about the units. I'll throw the units in there, but I might even get the units mixed up because in scientific research, we sometimes use picamoles and instead of picograms and all this, but, um, men have about 20 uh, nanograms per deciliter of estrogen. Just remember the number 20 mm-hmm. women also have about 20 nanograms per deciliter up to about 400, depending on the time of the month, they range a lot more widely. But in reality, most people, if you were, if you were to ask them ballpark, what they think estrogen is, you know, it's men, in men, it's 20. What do you think it is in female? They would say, oh, thousands, you know, <laughs> thousands. Mm. Well, in reality, 20, same level, oftentimes, depending again, on the time of the month, 20 to 400, not that variable in terms of, you know, the range especially in the context of these artificial estrogen chemicals. And I kind of forgot about the first part of your question, which is what are estrogenics that I talk about in my book? And those are artificial estrogens. So those are chemicals that act like estrogen in your body so they can disrupt all of these processes that natural estrogen have, either mimicking it or disrupting it in strange ways. And 
these artificial estrogens literally are being found in humans at thousands of nanograms per deciliter, thousands. So again, men are at 20, women 20 to 400, and we're seeing these artificial chemicals in our human blood at, in the thousands frequently. And I can give you study after study, but you know, we can dive into that later. Yeah. Okay. All right. So already I can see the big problem and why you, you're going to be passionate about it is that massive differential of what's naturally occurring in the body, those levels versus what we're being exposed to artificially. So exactly. I would like to know then, um, what was the, the reason or the reasons behind how you became so passionate about studying estrogen and, and artificial um, uh, sources of estrogen? Yeah, I think, well, initially it was because I found out it was in the water supply. And in America, the regulations are so pathetic on this. For example, Europe, um, they outlaw a chemical, an estrogenic chemical called atrazine. Atrazine is a herbicide. It's the second most used herbicide in North America after glyphosate, which is also called Roundup. But atrazine, second most used herbicide. And it's totally illegal in Europe. Zero is allowed in the drinking water. If they find it, they remediate. It's really extremely problematic in terms of health. For example, it changes the sex of frogs. Male frogs turn into females. They call it reproductive abnormalities, but in reality, it's feminization. Some, some scientists even call it feminization. And that's just one example of the health issues. But you know, nothing allowed in Europe in the drinking water. In America, 3,000 nanograms per deciliter are allowed in the drinking water. 3,000 goes back to that number again that i was just talking about with hormones 20 and versus 3000 exactly and and we're drinking that and of course it goes through your gut right your gut is one layer one cell layer thick and these hormones they love to they love to transport across membranes just like testosterone would on your if you rub it on your skin and so you can imagine basically i just got frustrated with the whole thing i just got irritated and it, because i'd never heard this and you see a scientific paper here or there talk about it, but even BPA is a great example because BPA, extremely estrogen, it acts like estrogen in your body, um, extremely common. And most people don't realize the reason it's a problem for your health is because it acts like estrogen. I didn't even know that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so there was a lot of epiphany moments for me that kind of culminated in this recognition that a lot of these health problems are number one, they're the same they have a pattern to them, like infertility, like depression, like breast cancer. You know, breast cancer is up 250% since 1980. Um, and it, most people have, if you ask a doctor, why is that happening? Why is breast cancer up? Oh, I don't know, right? We have no idea. Well, look at all these artificial estrogen chemicals. They're all acting in the same way. They're all acting on this estrogen receptor, stimulating the estrogen system. It's predictable. It makes sense once you start piecing that together. So you see common health problems, a number of chemicals that act the same way. Nobody's talking about it, so I had to write a book. Okay. Well, yeah, because um, that was going to be one of my other questions too is why should we be worried? And already what I'm hearing here is that there is a link to a possibility of increased cancer and different kind of cancers um, and and infertility and as you said make you fat weight gain unexplained weight gain where people are struggling and dieting too so the so most of us should be 
aware of or thinking about estrogens is what I'm hearing. And particularly if you live in the US. When you yeah. were when you were talking about the, the water system, I know with the US everything is so different per state. Is that when you were talking about those levels, do you think is that across all states in the US or is it only certain states? That one's across all the states. Yeah, it's federal. And I mean some states do have slightly restricted limits on certain estrogens, like BPA is a good example, but they don't regulate the water supply at all. They leave that up to the federal government, but they do outlaw BPA in certain children's toys. I, there's 17 states that, are, that have the BPA outlawed right now. Mm-hmm. But the crazy thing to me is that corporations in America, what they've done, instead of using bisphenol A, which is BPA, they literally use bisphenol S or bisphenol F or it's some other analog that's almost identical to BPA. And I've got publications that literally say scientific research that says BPA, BPF, BPAF, all these analogs are act as, as least as estrogenic as BPA. So, you know, even the alternatives oftentimes are problematic. What the companies are doing is problematic to try and, you know, pivot, quote unquote, pivot away from estrogens because they're still using estrogens. But in terms of water supply, I think it's all federal in the US. Okay. And so that's already got me thinking because that's where I want to move on to is the sources of all these artificial estrogens. And we've been talking about BPA and I know where you get a lot of plastics that will say they are BPA free, but maybe are you saying there's an issue where corporations might not put BPA in, but they would put BPC or F or some other one in? So definitely do that. In fact, I was on a podcast, literally doing a podcast interview, and the host was drinking from a plastic bottle. (laughs) And it said BPA-free on it, but it was plastic number seven, which is a bisphenol, you know, chemical label. So sometimes they have these little recycling symbols, Mm. and there'll be a number on it. And the plastic number, you know, in, in the case of seven, if you look at it and it says seven, it's one of those bisphenol analogs if it says BPA free. But uh, the other problem with plastics is they also have something called phthalates and that's spelled P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, phthalates. So weird pronunciation, weird spelling, but so not as sexy as BPA. Most people aren't talking about phthalates, but honestly, they're at least as problematic in terms of your health and they're estrogenic, same issue. They act like estrogen in your body. And yeah, again, they you're totally right about the cancers, the weight gains, the you know, the, the health problems. One of the ways I like to think about it, just, just so I can kind of tie this all together is if you, you know, when, during pregnancy, natural pregnancy, woman's estrogen, natural estrogen goes way up. Um, and just a so what happens? Well, you get some weight gain, you know, honestly, your body stores more fat in that context because our ancestors didn't always have access to nutrients and always has, have access to food. So fat is the most efficient stor- storage form of energy. And so if the fetus can't get energy, you know, if the, if the mother can't eat food, the fetus needs to survive by burning fat. So you have more fat storage. What happens with these artificial estrogens? Well, they hijack that process. So they still cause the fat gains, but obviously you're not pregnant, you know, and the breast cancer is the same way. You're kind of hijacking breast tissue growth and development, but it's in a kind of a bastardized way that causes health problems. And you can just go down the list, right? Infertility, you know, you're interacting with 
the reproductive hormones and the reproductive system and the organs and even the immune system, which I didn't mention before, that gets disrupted because natural estrogen, it, when doctors, medical doctors and research sa- suggests that when you have natural estrogen, it is both immunosuppressive and immunostimulative, which of course doesn't make any sense if you think about it. We're suppressing the immune system and stimulating it with estrogen, but that's just what happens. We don't understand why, but that's what we see. And that's, of course, because when you're pregnant, you, you can't have your body destroy the fetus. Hmm. You have to suppress your immune system, but also you have to fight infection and all that, maybe at a heightened level. So you have to you know, have a heightened immune system. But then, of course, you throw in these artificial estrogens like phthalates, like BPA, like atrazine, and boom, your immune system gets out of whack because that's a delicate balance. And we're, we're both suppressing it, stimulating it who knows the result, you know, what's going to come out on the back end of that. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. And, um, so, so if we start off with, uh, going a little bit more into, into water then, um, that would you say that is one of the greatest sources of artificial estrogen for most people, particularly it sounds in the U S is just, you, you, it's not just, you may have glass in your house and you don't use plastics a lot or you don't use water bottles, but everyone has to drink municipal water federal water so is that the is that the biggest source and then as it sounds like a part of that reasoning is because of the agricultural system which is then that's how it's leaching into the natural water system is that right yep Yep. well the atrazine is specifically designed not to break down and so yeah it lasts a long time it goes through the system it ends up in the water supply for sure um birth control in the city so in the rural country in the rural areas Atrazine is a big problem. As you get into the more densely populated areas, you find a lot of birth control in the water. And that includes Europe. They've done studies even in Switzerland, this remote, tiny little lake out in the mountains. They found fish that were having, you know, feminization of fish and weird reproductive abnormalities. And so they they measured a bunch of different chemicals and they found extremely high levels of birth control out there. And it was because there was a river going through a town that was sweeping it out into this lake. So, you know, that's definitely the highest source potentially, but if you're filtering your water, usually you're getting rid of it because most filters have activated charcoal. They usually just call it carbon or something, but in reality, what they mean is activated charcoal. Mm -hmm. That works. It actually gets rid of uh, natural estrogen, testosterone, all these lipophilic hormones, all these artificial estrogens. It it removes those because, you know, that's just the way it uh, that's just the property of activated charcoal. I used to use it in the lab to, uh, to remove hormones from media, from growth media in the cells. We mm-hmm. you'd a- actually literally, you know, run an activated charcoal filter and that would remove all these, these hormones again, natural or synthetic. Yeah. It just, uh, you know, I always wondered if it was an urban myth where people would say, Oh no, there's too much, you know, estrogen in the, in the water supply. And that's why guys are, uh, Feminized, more, yeah. more feminine <laughs> and so what you're saying is that it it there's a truth to that that's you yeah, know oh, that yeah. so, yeah, with, so, with society um more birth control pills that it it is getting into the water and this could be influencing male physiology yes <laughs> <laughs> and and some doctors hate me for saying that but uh it's political you know so it's a difficult topic to breach but 
I was talking to some, so I work at the Mayo Clinic now. I'm researching stem cells and other things, but I was talking to some expert on, on estrogens and our estrogen expert there, and she's just about to retire. And so I think she's more disposed to just be honest with me and tell me what she really thinks as opposed to kind of couching all her, what she's saying and being political. And she says, without a question, est- these estrogen chemicals are feminizing males. And I'll give you an example. Lowering testosterone is a form of feminization because females in general, and this is animals and humans, we have, the females have lower testosterone. So if you go with extremely low testosterone, you're talking about feminizing. You're going in that direction. Um, you know, and there's other issues too, and it's difficult to study in humans, of course. But for example, brain activation changes in males versus females and motivation. Our motivation, these sex hormones alter our motivation in different ways because we have different amounts of receptors in different places in our brain. And so, for example, when uh, rats, when male rats are given a lot of estrogen or artificial estrogen, by the way, it decreases their motivation to do just about anything, not just sex drive type things, but just across the board motivation. And I think that's a form of feminization if you want to think about that way. But yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a problem. It's a dicey situation politically to say things like that because, you know, as a scientist, you just want to describe what you're seeing biologically, mm-hmm. but then there's people that think that's somehow, you know, inappropriate to say. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, you know, that's also what you just said there with the difference between men and women uh, and the effects of this and even the, the your brain health. And maybe we're, we're going to be getting into that about some of the solutions or some of the symptoms to watch out. But you've already got me thinking maybe for some people, if they feel like they've got a chronic brain fog or lack of motivation and focus that another element as they go down the rabbit hole to fix themselves is to look at their water supply in this case what we're just talking about like yep. make maybe try filtering your water for a while um yeah. to, oh, for as, sure as no maybe 100 <laughs> filter it and, okay. and then try some other things too because a red number 40 for example these red food colorings uh-huh. uh, those also the structure of those chemicals are just look really similar to estrogen there are studies that suggest they act like estrogen, depending on the, you know, how deep they've delved into it. Most of the time, they've barely even scratched the surface on that research. But the studies that are out there suggest to me they're estrogenic. And for example, that's a, they, like children you find w- that, are, that have higher levels of blood, BPA, have higher levels of depression, even at that age. Similar with red 40, red food, food dyes, right? similar with other estrogen chemicals. So you nailed it with the, the effects on the brain. I mean, it starts at a young age, it's manifesting, we're seeing it in the population. And people are really struggling on some of these areas like infertility or depression, they're spending mm-hmm. a ton of money trying to get to the bottom, taking drugs, seeing different doctors. And I mean, the difficulty with these estrogen chemicals is that they can, they kind of, they don't cause immediate symptoms. You know, they're not, Mm. they're not causing bloating, you know, headaches most of the time. Sometimes you see that, but most of the time it's more of a slow, insidious, creeping health problem. It kind of eats away, you know, and it takes years. So that, so even the studies, most studies, if you look at them, they're a couple of weeks, you know, most studies are a month. They're not, they're not doing research over the course of years. And so a lot of these get overlooked or they don't get looked at at all. 
Mm. And what are some of the other sources then? So you've mentioned water, you mentioned food dyes. Um, yeah. F- we've we've talked a little bit about plastics, but um, other food sources then, that's another big contributing factor? Yeah. The, well, on my, so I, in my book, I created a top 10 list, which doesn't mean there's only 10 of these chemicals, but I clumped a few together and created categories, you know, trying to simplify it. I mean, there's like, for example, Agent Orange can alter your estrogen system. So, but that didn't make my book, you know, because we're not exposed to Agent Orange very often, hopefully. Yeah. So there's a lot of chemicals out there, but the ones that we're getting exposed to every day in the plant world are phytoestrogens, plant estrogens. So plants create hormones just like people to grow. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, you find one of those chemicals, that plant, those plant hormones actually acts like estrogen in humans or some other hormone, right? So the phytoestrogens, basically, they did a study um, in Canada with over 100 food items, a huge study, and they found soy and flax were the only two plants that were even remotely high in phytoestrogens, and they were crazy high. So all the plants were below 1,000 nanograms per 100 micrograms of food. I mean, uh, or anyway, the units, I'm not, it was 100 micrograms of plant estrogen in 100 grams of the food, right? But everything was under 1,000 except soy, which was over 100,000, and flax, which was over 300,000. So those plants, yeah, they cause estrogenic symptoms. And you can see that if you're looking for it in the scientific studies. Okay. So, you know, people are going to be listening to this and, and thinking, um, so if I eat vegetables, am I going to expose myself? And <laughs> it's like, because, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who are listening here who are probably on a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet and eating greens or um, different kind of diets. Um, and they're just, I guess it's one of those actionable tips where people are going to want, want to know at what threshold of eating vegetables does it actually cause a problem in me? Right. I would say the only ones you have to worry about are soy and flax. I mean, there's no evidence of any other plant foods. There is definitely evidence with lavender, breathing in lavender essential oil consistently or rubbing it on your skin in the case of lotions. That can cause estrogenic symptoms. And the research is becoming more and more clear on that because people are finally looking more and more into that one. Um, because there's been there was a New England Journal of Medicine article published on gynecomastia. That's man boobs from people that are using a ton of lavender oil in their soaps and as soon as they removed the the soap their lavender their their man boobs went away and then they started investigating the actual essential oil pure 100 percent essential oil from different companies and they found that they activate the estrogen receptor which to me that's that says it all you know wow. yeah it's just it's just a couple people the study wasn't huge in pe- in humans but once they started looking at the estrogen receptor activation that was the, what convinced me that, oh, this, this is a problem. I want people to be aware of that because some people are you know, using it every day. If you're just kind of having a little bit here, a little bit there, and that's probably true of most of these things, <clears throat> not that big of a deal. But the problem is when people are you know, using, breathing in essential oil every day from lavender, they're eating soy products every day. And just as a caveat, by the way, if you're fermenting your soy, no issues. Like for example, soy sauce that was actually fermented was all under 100 uh, on that same study. So again, regular soy, so like soybeans, 100,000. Soy sauce under 100. Night and day difference, you know? So wow. 
so there's some variables with the foods and, and our bodies at least have seen these foods before these chemicals. So the gut bacteria can break them down. And that happens a lot with flax, mm-hmm. thankfully, because your gut bacteria love to eat those flax estrogens and break them down for you if you have a healthy gut. But that's a big assumption nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's hit or miss. And if you've got estrogen like symptoms or you're worried about estrogen, like you're an athlete or you're, you've, you're worried about breast cancer that runs in your family, infertility, low testosterone, whatever, and you want to be more extreme about it, I, I tell people avoid flax, frankly. Okay. Yeah, well, that's already two actionable, tip, actionable tips there is um, the type of soy because soy is found in so many food yeah. products too when you read the label. And then, yeah, flax oil, which some people might use or just flax itself. So, those are two big tips that you would say people need to be aware of. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I love the idea because that was going to be one of my questions about the soy with um, soy sauce in sushi restaurants, and just thinking, okay, well, it 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 does taste good on on your food, but unfortunately, it depends on the quality of the soy sauce. I know a lot of them have right. MSG in them too, but uh, and they're not said, even and they're not even fermented nowadays. Some of these companies they're they're bypassing the actual fermentation process for cheaper methods and. It's a mess out there in the industry, in the industrial food world, as you know, but yeah, yeah, good soy sauce is good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and yeah, you've, you've, you also then talked about um, the food there, but, but with the packaging, I want to get onto that one now too. So, we've, we've touched on the plastics and the BPA and I, I didn't even know that, okay, if something's BPA free, doesn't mean that it's, it's not going to actually still cause an issue because they've just changed one letter in the chemical structure there. Um, so, uh, you're a fan then of saying no bottled water that is in plastic? Except on the rare occasion. I mean, yeah, sometimes you're traveling, you really don't have a choice. It's better than probably drinking out of the bathroom sink, <laughs> <laughs> which probably is full of weird estrogens or something. But yeah, I definitely am not a fan of bottled plastic water. I actually, for for outdoor adventure type stuff which i love doing i'm a hunter i fish you know i do a lot of things stainless steel is awesome it works it doesn't break and then just in general around the house i i'd like to use glass i prefer glass because for some reason if you pour coffee into stainless steel it it smells like coffee forever (laughs) no matter how many times you wash it or what you wash it with and i inevitably do that with my stainless things (laughs) but you know those two alternatives, glass or stainless, I mean, there's no issue. And and I keep, I literally keep a case of San Pellegrino. Do you guys have San Pellegrino in in, in your little island there? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And we and we get it in either plastic bottles or glass bottles. Oh wow! Yep. Yeah, exactly. I I buy the San Pellegrino water bottles, the the glass ones, and I, I drink them and I love them. But it's kind of expensive to constantly be drinking those, and so I refill the glass and I even keep a 24 pack case. I mean, I've got children, but I keep a case in my car mostly mm-hmm. again, for the kids because you know they're always wanting water at some random time. But it's glass; it can heat up. There's not going to be plastic leaching, especially within the car. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's ways. You know, you just have to be a little bit creative sometimes. But it's not that much of a, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but hindrance. And so, you've just mentioned another um, topic that a lot of people might think about at times is the issue of plastic bottles in the car with heat 
And so you're saying that is a problem that you wouldn't sure. want to keep your plastic bottle in the boot of your car and it's going from hot to cold to hot to cold. That right. It's, well, it's not even, a, even at room temp, I have an issue. Most people don't. Most people only worry about the heated plastics, the water that's in heated plastics, and that's better, right? So heat definitely increases molecular motion. Heat definitely increases the amount of estrogen that gets leached into your water bottles or whatever substance. But so so does fat, you know? So does, like, for example, if you have oil, if you have a bottle of oil, there's going to be a lot more estrogen that leaches into the oil than if you have a bottle of water in that same plastic because oil is more similar to estrogen in its chemical properties. So it tends to leach it out more. It tends to kind of bind and just interact with these estrogen chemicals. So, you, you know, a lot of these research studies, unfortunately, they're done in animal models, which can be weird, right? Because even like, for example, mice, they don't even have cholesterol ester, esterase transfer, CETP, cholesterol ester transferase protein, KETP, they call it. So they, they have a totally different physiology in terms of fat metabolism, cholesterol metabolism, all this. I mean, that's a complicated side story. I probably shouldn't have even mentioned because I can't even pronounce esterase. <laughs> but anyways, um, you know, aside from the changes between animals and humans in those research studies, they're, what kind of fat are they giving those animals? Inevitably, they're giving them these terrible fats, oxidized like crazy, and full of estrogens because they're in plastic containers for who knows how long. And so I think the substance that's in the plastic container matters. And I think the, the heat matters. And then the duration, of course, just how long something has been sitting there makes mm -hmm. a big difference. Okay. And so when you were talking about fats there too, you know, a lot of people, again, who are listening to this, who might be on a high fat diet, low carb diet, they may be consuming more fats of course and a common one is mct oil and i notice a lot of mct oils come in plastic bottles plastic. i don't think i've seen one in a glass one maybe um, they do they, they make them because i buy them <laughs> okay but even there you're, you're saying people should be aware that you're you're consuming a lot of mct oil every day but exactly, is, is exactly. It, and That's are there any awesome. safe plastics then that if yeah, they're, you know, they're, you'll have companies that will say no but this plastic bottle is something and so it's okay yep there's definitely safe ones in that regard i the best ones are two four and five if you look on the recycling symbol number one oftentimes get gets touted as safe you look on the plastic recycling symbol you see number one that's super common mostly because it looks really pretty you know it's easy to manipulate it's super clear so you see it in a lot of juices again you're, if you're studying juice are you studying the sugar or are you studying the sugar plus the artificial estrogen chemicals you're probably studying both you know but you find plastic number one, it's, it's called polyethylene tera phthalate. And just like BPA, when, that was, when, when we were making BPA plastics, everybody was saying, oh, the scientists were saying, no, it doesn't bleach. There's no leaching. You know, <laughs> like it's no big deal. Well, 10 years later, here we are. Same with the phthalates, you know, polyethylene tera phthalate. Oh, there's no leaching. Everybody's saying right now. Not everybody, because if you, look, dig, if you dig deep enough into the studies, you do see the leaching numbers you know, around a th about a thousand nanograms per liter, I would say at room temperature, which in my opinion is concerning. But the problem, the problem is natural estrogen. Again, we're talking about nanograms and artificial estrogens. We're talking about nanograms. We're talking about a lot more nanograms, but still nanograms. That's 10 to the minus ninth grams. 
I mean, that's crazy, crazy, minuscule number. You know, it's such a tiny amount. It's hard to measure. It's hard for scientists to get their head around the idea that that's having a big impact because most of the time, these toxicity guys, these guys that study, you know, how, what level is toxic, like in cyanide or whatever, when they're trying to get these things approved, all they care about is death, you know, or genetic mutations. Does it cause gene mutations? And if so, how many milligrams, you know what I mean? Like just dumped on this thing will cause some kind of a cancer or some kind of a cell death. But honestly, we're overlooking the fact that nanograms have an impact on your hormones. Yeah, it might take longer for to manifest those health impacts, but we're finally getting there as a scientific research community to start looking at that. And it's opening a lot of eyeballs. And, and epigenetics is probably the, the biggest field that's opening up, you know, big concerns with artificial estrogen chemicals. Yeah. And the way I would have people try to think about that practically then is that when you sort of go on a health kick and you go into gym and you start buying bottled water or you start buying a, a particular range of water thinking uh, that it's better because it says something on the bottle too, but it's probably still bottled in a plastic that unknowingly that's the way that you can start sort start exposing yourself to a chronic exposure of this if you do it for many years um, exactly yeah and, yeah and let me throw another one in there because i like how you're getting to the actionable you know <laughs> like what can you do once you're filtering your water which hopefully your audience is with activated charcoal of some form it's the cosmetics you know people are rubbing estrogens on their skin through the parabens the phthalates that are in the soaps the perfumes the fragrances and companies are hiding these things under the term fragrance you know they use this term they're legally at least in america they're legally allowed to to put phthalates to put parabens all these artificial chemicals into the perfume but then they can call it fragrance on the label so you as a consumer you can't even determine whether those chemicals are in there and that's a huge source of estrogen chemicals. A good study example is a, a nature paper that showed pregnant women that use perfume have 163% higher levels of phthalates in their blood than non-perfume users. And that was enough of a concern. It made news media a long time, you know, a few years ago. It was enough to kind of wake people up, but you know, still, it's it's just like anything else. There's so much information out there. People are inundated. They're not paying attention. So you have to kind of piece these all together. And sunscreens are another one. You know, people are rubbing sunscreens on their, on their skin. And there's a couple of chemicals, including oxybenzone, which is a benzophenone chemical, and 4-methylbenzylene camphor, which is an unfortunately long chemistry name. Um, I call it 4-MBC. A lot of scientists do. But those there's a few chemicals in sunscreen products, best to just use zinc, you know, find something with 20% zinc with no artificial shenanigans, you're mm -hmm. good to go. You know, that's natural. If, if a little bit gets in your system, that's probably good for you. <laughs> and that stuff is good. I mean, I'm, I've got red hair, ginger hair. And uh, yep. so I've burnt and I grew up in Africa. So I, I know what sunburns like. And yep. yeah, zinc oxide is, is the bomb. That stuff yep. makes yep. a difference. <laughs> yeah, it works. It, you know, and they even make it in spray form now because some parents for their children at school now, at least here in America, there's certain situations where they literally require you to bring spray sunscreens, those kind that are aerosol. And thankfully they've even made these good quality ones in those forms. I actually have a piece on my website about that. I don't make any money from it, but 
it's on my consulting company website. It's ajconsultingcompany.com slash what I use. That's all one word. And people can literally see the, the uh, personal care products that I personally use. doesn't mean that it's an exhaustive list. It's not at all exhaustive. But if they are interested, most of the products I use are really affordable. And none of them have these estrogen chemicals. Yeah. Well, and already what I've heard, what we talked about in the beginning there was just a good filter and that, and looking at that roots, but then um, sort of storing that in different containers too. And um, exactly. with other environmental factors too, um, off-gassing from cars and their dashboard when they heat up, is yep. that an issue? Yep. Yeah, unfortunately, it's crazy. At least the new cars. That's what the new car smell is coming from. It's coming from phthalates. And I have this personal theory, and I think it's validated scientifically, conceptually, but not in terms of data. Nobody's done a, a good study on this. But I have a theory that we're, as men at least, especially, maybe even to some degree women, uh, we're actually attracted to these artificial estrogen smells. They, they, they trigger something in our brain, like a positive association. And again, it's bastardized. It's not something that's good, but we perceive that as good because it's, it's triggering kind of something similar to what natural estrogen would trigger. And so we actually think that smell is wonderful. Now we go into a new car. Oh, I love that art of that chemical smell. And there's, there's actually studies, believe it or not. It's crazy. Not, not only is there studies on cars and how high the levels of phthalates are in those cars. And by the way, benzophenone, which is a sunscreen chemical. So they put that benzophenone in a lot of the plastics within the car to make it so this UV doesn't destroy them. And the crazy thing is there's good alternatives that are not estrogenic, but they don't use them because they're a little bit more expensive. But there's also studies, and you can, if you don't believe me, Google it. it like, for example, with laundry detergent and how even using these perfumed laundry detergents that have benzophenones or phthalates, just Google laundry detergent benzophenone and hopefully it'll pull up the study because I know there's a really good study out, out there on this and showing, not just showing that the clothing has it, right? You run it through the laundry machine. It should be, you know, you think you're washing it off. No, you're not because these things prefer the, to stay on the clothing than to go in the water because again, they kind of float on water. They're more like oils. So you think you're washing it off. And not only did they test the clothing and say, oh yeah, there's estrogen chemicals on the clothing. They tested the people that were wearing the clothing and showed that that increase that spiked their blood levels having these crappy laundry detergents with these chemicals. So it's a real issue. And that's another daily exposure, right? We're talking about daily exposures, not, yeah. not Agent Orange. And that's my problem with all of these, you know, is that if you look at the average Joe on the street, man, they're getting exposed to a lot of these chemicals every single day. And I was too, you know, it's a lot of people. We're, we're going to really extreme levels in biohacking and it's amazing. It's awesome. And then we kind of hit some of these roadblocks and this oftentimes, you know, pushes us past these roadblocks because most people aren't aware of it. It's nasty for your health. Hmm. And so now, you, you know, you're going to have people thinking about how do I know I've got an issue with it? So are there ways yeah. that you would suggest that people can test to see if they are in the issue with too much estrogen or that they might be susceptible to this issue? Yeah, I think the best way by far, because unfortunately there's no, there's no standardized BPA blood level test or urine test or phthalates. I mean, yeah, we do it in the lab. We do it in research labs, but it costs a ton of money. It's real specialized, you know, 
there's no standardized way. So, or not standardized, but there's no commercial way. Um, the best way, in my opinion, is testosterone. Measure your testosterone, even for women. If you're extremely low, uh, get rid of these chemicals. You know, in fact, you can do an experiment. You guys are biohackers. You love this stuff. I love this stuff, frankly. Test your testosterone right away. Test it right now. Get rid of these chemicals, especially in the soaps, especially in your water. You know, be real extreme about it for a while. And then retest your testosterone a couple times. You know, you'll see it go up. I get testimonials all the time on that because it's, it's a good indicator. And it's, it's cheap and easy, relatively cheap. It's real standardized. You know, you can go and do that. But honestly, it's unfortunate because I wish, I wish I could say, oh, there's this great BPA test that I developed or whatever. It's difficult, though, because it's nanograms. You know, mm. so the, the equipment to measure these things, it just has to be astonishingly accurate or else you're just wasting your time. And, but, uh, you know, um, using testosterone as a surrogate marker, it's kind of like I had Ben Bickman on um, and he's an insulin researcher mm. and he was talking about using a ketone meter to measure your insulin, you know, if you can't measure your insulin directly. And what, sort of what I'm hearing from you here is if you can't, you can't measure your in estrogen levels directly but you could use your testosterone as a surrogate marker and would and you're saying that's for both men and women so even right yep yep okay and because women uh, are chronically low in our culture also and i mean it's a strange thing the way these estrogen chemicals act for example in in teenage in, in girls going through puberty um these chemicals have been shown to cause puberty to lower the age. They lower the age range of pu puberty. Um, so it happens more early. Exactly. So instead yeah. of happening at 14, it happens at 10 or 9. And, and it's become actually so common. I literally have medical journal articles. I've done YouTube videos on this that, that propose we redefine the normal age range of puberty because it's so common. The doctors, instead of actually addressing the problem, and by the way, we know the problem. If you add BPA and give animals a bunch of BPA, it lowers the age range of their puberty. You know, and they and they see girls with lower age ranges of puberty have really high levels of these chemicals. I mean, if you actually dig in and look at it, we know the problem. But instead of addressing the problem, the doctors are suggesting let's lower the normal range and just make this problem go away. It's crazy, but that's how sometimes our medical system has been working. Okay, but I love your idea to, to then uh, coming back to the testing idea is that how how long would you wait before you did your retest? So if I had an issue and I went, oh, okay, so my I've done the test, my testosterone testosterone is low for my age. Um, I'm going to try um, do do what Doctor J said and you know do environmental changes and water changes and food change changes potentially would you say that i should expect a difference in 30 days 60 days or have to wait 90 days you know like two months three months i love that question yeah um based on drug studies where they look at fat and how fat disperses drugs so for example uh, you know for example your average fat cell in your body can survive one year and a half and they found fat cells that can live up to 10 years long so in theory, these estrogen chemicals can literally stay in your cells for 10 years. Now, practically, that's not normal. Um, usually, you're probably right. It's probably between 30, 60, 90 days, depending on how much you're, which chemical it is, how much you're exercising, how much you're moving around. Honestly, also, saunas. You know, you want another actionable? I say hit the heat, you know, get in the heat, especially if you can do infrared plus heat. 
you know, you get those molecular, get that molecular motion increased and saunas do an awesome job of dispersing these estrogen chemicals out of your fat cells into your blood. They've done studies with patch testing. They actually put a patch like a, like a nicotine patch on people's skin, except without the nicotine. And then they just determined people that are not sitting in saunas and people that are sitting in saunas, they measure the chemicals they're excreting onto these patches with, I mean, you can exercise and sweat, but for some reason saunas, because especially infrared, you can actually heat up inside your body a lot deeper and it's really, you know, it's a lot hotter. Um, they, you excrete a ton of BPA, a ton of phthalates and all of these other chemicals if you're looking for them. <clears throat> and so you can expedite the process, but yeah, I think one month, two months, somewhere in that range, maybe both, you know, is probably ideal depending on how strict you are about actually removing these chemicals. <laughs> well, like, yeah, it just to me, when I talk about actionable stuff too, I try to think, is it sustainable and is it maybe available worldwide to anyone in any country? And yep. they're yeah, doing lifestyle changes, but even the, the infrared and sauna tip is a great one. So, if I was a male, because I do see this in the forums a lot, a lot of males might say, oh no, I've come back, I've got really low testosterone, I'm, I'm going to try to take this supplement or change my diets or something. But I never hear... <clears throat> I never hear of this situation where people are like, you know what, I'm actually going to try this estrogen roots and try to take all that stuff out first and maybe do the infrared sauna and then retest myself in two months' time and see if that's made a difference. Exactly. I think that's fascinating. Well, and I call it the estrogenic paradox in my book because these chemicals store in your fat, like we said, but they also cause your cells to store fat, right? So that's a paradox because how can you get them out of your cells they're constantly in there telling the cells to store more fat and they want, they want to stay in those fat cells. So it's a difficult kind of hump to get over if you're trying to lose that fat. And yeah, definitely saunas help get over that hump. Uh -huh. And I mean, there's also genetic variables. So for example, when I do genetic consulting, DNA consulting, um, which I do pretty frequently now, I recently opened that up to just you know lay people. I was previously only doing professional athletes, which I still do, but you know, are really high performing individuals, but I, I, now I just do it in general because it's so powerful and helpful for people. But there's a genetic component here with the estrogens because about 10% of people that I do consulting for, even just, just with 23andMe data, you can literally identify genetic uh, variants that indicate you can process estrogen or you can't process estrogen through your liver enzymes. And the people that cannot flush estrogen out of their body you know, again, it's about 10% of people. There's a massive health difference. I mean, you see it. Yeah, you see health. I, in my opinion, you see health problems with everybody because we're being exposed so much. But man, if you have problems processing estrogen, you really see the health problems. So that's again, when we come back to the testing component, yep. you can test to see if you have an issue or you could use your 23andMe genetic data to see if you're more susceptible to an issue too. So, exactly. and sort of combine the two data points together to go, ah, okay, I actually do need to address this. And, and, and if you're testing your testosterone, like you were asking about how long you should wait, that's a great point that you basically brought up. You kind of switched on for me is that if you've got a problem in your estrogen genes, you're not eliminating it very well. You better wait longer to test your testosterone because it's going to take longer to get those estrogens out, you know? Well, that's a great point too. So when people, because people might go, oh no, nothing's happened in 60 days. I'm, you know, maybe I'm doing it wrong or it's not working. And, 
but this is another point in in the healthcare journey to say, well, you genetic, it would be another piece to the puzzle to to check exactly. to see. And there's one other piece I want to throw at you because we haven't even talked about mold estrogen, and a lot of people aren't even aware it exists. You know, people do know about mycotoxin. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they don't realize one of the mycotoxins, one of the major mycotoxins, is mycoestrogen, means mold estrogen. So if you, for some reason, have mold behind your sink or mold in your basement or whatever, and you're breathing in mold toxin, you're actually being exposed to mold estrogen and artificial estrogen. And it's not technically artificial, I guess, but you know, it's, it's definitely not natural to your body. And it's called xerolenone. If, if people want to investigate that, Z-E-A, xerolenone, oftentimes just abbreviated Z-E-A because that's easier. But it's insidious. And in my opinion, it's a, it's a real issue with grains because we're, we're mass producing our grains more and more and we're storing them in these huge silos and they inevitably get more mold in those big silos. And what they've done is they've increased the allowable limits of mold in the grain products. And, and in fact, they don't even test for mold estrogen in America. Now they do in Europe and they're a lot more stringent about it in Europe. But that's true of pretty much all of these chemicals, right? Europe has been a lot more strict about it, a lot more cautious. In America, we have more political influence from money. So these corporations you know, have a lot more say. But what they do in Europe, when they find a batch that has a lot of mycoestrogen, they ship it over here and they use it. And in fact, is what's really crazy is they have limits on their animal feed for mycoestrogen in Europe. Here in America, nothing. Not even for people, right? Nothing for people. No <laughs> limits. So that's another one that you probably want to ditch, you know, ditch the grains if you're going through this, this, and probably your listeners have already, but some people haven't. And if you're getting rid of estrogens, you can't overlook the grains because that might be a daily source of estrogen. And so you, you got me thinking too now about with our meat supply and uh, another popular diet that's coming out now is the carnivore diet um which is the all meat diet and i did that experiment earlier this year um after speaking with uh sean baker and you had him on yeah yeah that was a great conversation and but now you know there's i see a debate in that in that group between grass-fed and grain-fed beef and (laughs) <laughs> Do you have an opinion then now talking Not about definitely. the grains and the healthcare of the animal and the animal that we're eating? Exactly. I'm glad you brought it up. I, 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 Sean and I actually butt heads on this one. We've gone back and forth a few times on it. Okay. Because he, he, he takes a practical approach. You know, basically, you want to save money. Meat's okay. Yeah. Just buy whatever, and just eat meat. And yeah, that's that, that, that's actually the approach I used to take. I used to say, okay, bacon. You know, fat, any kind of fat product, you got to be especially careful because animals store these estrogens in their fat. So they're condensed in the fat. You want to be super careful because these research studies that are condemning bacon, they're really just studying artificial estrogen storage, you know, let's be honest. But, you know, when you're looking at grass-fed meat versus conventional meat, you know, presumably there's not that much fat, so it's not going to make that much difference. That's what I thought until I started researching it really heavily and writing this book, Estrogeneration, when I found out that feedlot cows, this is the piece of data that kind of tipped me over the edge. Feedlot cows, they're feeding them mostly corn, tons of corn. And yeah, they spray some, you know, they spray atrazine on the corn like we talked about before. There's definitely mold. 
but let's just look at the atrazine because that was the one that really got me. Um, they took blood from feedlot cows, just blood, not muscle tissue, not fat cells. And obviously there's a lot of blood in a piece of steak, you know, 700,000 nanograms per deciliter of atrazine just in the blood. That's what they found. It definitely is causing health problems in the cows, but those health problems are so transient because they're butchering those cows. The mm. health problems in reality are reflected onto us. And so I, I changed my mind right then and switched over to grass-fed, healthy, free-range type meats. And again, I'm a hunter, so I already had a lot of that going on. But when I was buying meat, I wasn't buying that. And I, now I do. And I feel strongly about it based on that. And if you look up xerolinone in the meats too, you'll find those numbers are surprisingly high and at levels that are going to have an impact. So do you think if someone who eats an all-meat diet and their, testos- and their testosterone goes down, this could be one of the reasons? Is For the sure. actual source of their food? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much estrogen. And Sean Baker, you know, that guy exercises like a fiend. He's probably flushing a lot out. You know, you can... You, your body increases metabol, uh, metabolism and metabolites, you know, breakdown products when you're working out all the time like he does. And it's so intensely. And I mean, you kind of have to gauge your own lifestyle and say, okay, I work out even more than Sean Baker, so I can get away with a little bit more, you know what I mean? Or, or, or the opposite end of that and just kind of have a sense, but at least have a sense, at least be aware yeah, I mean, these chemicals will, will lower your testosterone. They are in the meats. And, you know, I mean, it's not that much more expensive. If you buy like half a cow or something from a really trusted farmer, it's not that much more expensive. That's the problem. You just have to go buy in bulk, I think. Yeah. And, I, th- you know, I, again, thinking practically, when people are on whatever floor of an apartment in New York City right now, um, it's a different sort of food source situation versus someone who is in a countryside rural town. Um, yeah, it's just how we can source our, source our different quality of foods in our different geolocations. So, yeah. um, but no, again, it just brings up another fascinating piece to the puzzle that people can start hacking and thinking about when they're on their journey and if they're trying to lift testosterone levels or deal with estrogen issues, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I know we've talked a lot there. Hopefully, everyone's got a lot of actionable tips out of that. Um, and we we got so much more to talk about because I know you, as you touched on just a little bit with that genetic testing in the 23andMe, which is actually something I want to learn more about. So, I'm going to definitely get you on for another episode of that. But uh, are there any specific links that you would like to share at this point for people to follow you or to catch up and keep in touch with you? Yeah, my YouTube channel literally today i think it's going to hit 1000 subscribers which is awesome cool. as far as i'm concerned because i've never put any money into it a lot of people spend money on the ads and increase their clicks and subscribers i'd never have i just try and present really actionable information like we've talked about here i really like your focus i mean actionable things that's great you know keep bringing back to it keeps me honest keeps me thinking about that and that's what i try and do on my youtube channel <laughs> Sometimes I get a little technical, but I try and make it for lay people, simplify science. That's the goal. And then the the best way to probably find me is through my consulting company, which is ajconsultingcompany.com. I know I mentioned it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of just, you know, information about my DNA consulting. I don't know, just a, a compilation of my YouTube videos, some of the stuff, and also my book, you know, which is, of course, on Amazon and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes. But, you know, already, I think just in the 60 minutes that we've talked about here, you know, this could open up a can of worms for people where they, they keep hunting, they keep wanting to know more or understand more. And they would be able to contact you to, to, to go deeper down that estrogen rabbit hole to say, I wonder if this is causing me a problem because I think that's what some, some are going to need listening to this. Yeah, for sure. And and my book has 400 references. I mean, it's written for the lay person. It's simple. But if you look at the references, they're all good scientific literature references. And I'm actually pretty responsive on email. I, I, I try and really get back to people that have legitimate questions. And I learn a lot from that. You know, honestly, people have taught me, you know, they've they've enlightened me on a lot of areas. And so I appreciate that. Keep the questions coming. <laughs> cool. Well, everyone heard that? Yeah. Email uh, Dr. J. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But again, thank you so much for coming on today. And yeah, we did. I think we, we got a good mix of um, the science, but then how the practicalities and the action that can be taken from that. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And uh, yeah, we're going to get you on again for the genetic talk. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks.